Well, I have to admit that since being retired for a year and a half, that getting up here is kind of scary. <laughs> but your friendly, loving faces are so moving. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. I take it that was for the music. It was so <laughs> beautiful. It's so good to anchor ourselves in mercy. I am... Um, I'm guessing I'm not the only one who struggled with faith over the last couple of years. The pandemic. Speaking of which, maybe we could spend a moment in quiet and just think and pray for the families. It's over a million who've died. Maybe we just spend a moment of prayer right now, thinking of those families in America. And while we're at it, we could also just think of Ukraine. So much going on. Our planet, issues that divide us. Let's just spend a moment in quiet. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of so much turmoil in our world, you are here and you cannot be moved. You are here. And so, Lord, we lift up this service, service to you, the text I'm going to read, meditation. Open our hearts, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So, how do we unravel and disentangle faith from so much going on in our world and in our nation? I've often found myself wondering what is unshakable. And I think this passage we're looking at today has some answers. Because to start with, the man who wrote it was experiencing a situation fully as unsettling as our own. He was in chains, falsely accused, abandoned by friends, facing trial before a megalomaniac emperor who had no sympathy for Christians while trying to encourage a colleague leading a church that was unsettled by internal controversies and quarrels. Be strong, writes Timothy, writes Paul to Timothy. Okay, but how, how do you find strength in such trouble? I think Paul gives three clues that apply equally well to us today. So let's read 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 10, and we'll see what we find. You then, my son, 
Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us. Like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying. But the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. So what to do when we feel shaken in faith? In this passage, Paul gives three guidelines. Receive grace. Reflect upon faith. And remember Jesus Christ. Let's look at these one at a time. First of all, receive grace. You then, my son, writes Paul, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Recently, Jim Morris gave me a little book by Henry Nowen, the author of our church's Lenten series devotional. It's called Beyond the Mirror, and it's about an experience Nowen had of God after being struck down by a car as he was hurrying by foot to work. I was comforted in reading the opening pages in which... He described himself as an anxious, stressed, nervous, and fearful person. I read it aloud to my wife, and we both laughed as it reminded us both of me. (laughs) Those remarks of now and however were a perfect introduction to his experience later in the hospital. With five broken ribs and severe bleeding from a ruptured spleen, close to death, Nowen received a visit from Jesus and heard him say, come to me. Now and had the overwhelming feeling that Jesus was opening his home to him. The place he said he was preparing for us in John 14. And that he was saying to him, this is where you belong. With me. This is your home. He writes, the risen Jesus, who now dwells with the Father, was welcoming me home after a long journey. He felt Jesus' presence in such a tangible way that it changed his perspective on the way he would live the rest of his life. 
It made him want to live his Christian life from that place of Christ's overwhelming love. Reconciling himself to any who were angry with him. Or with whom he was angry. In the light of Christ's love, all the other issues seemed unimportant. He resolved to live out of that place, that home beyond the mirror. Strengthened by the knowledge that his true home, his true life was in that place where Christ dwells. Despite of and in the face of all he knew about himself as a broken, nervous, fearful person, Nowen was strengthened in grace. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, we read in Titus, he saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. And Paul tells Timothy to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is what he means. It is strength flowing from the knowledge of God's love in spite of ourselves. For Paul, this was especially vivid. As Patrick pointed out last week, he, is, he had been a persecutor of the church. God's grace to him became his life's message. It's why he could say to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Here, enfolding Henry Nowen, was that same love for a broken, nervous man. It's good to know, isn't it? We're not saved by our extraordinarily balanced and self-assured personalities, but by grace. And so Paul encourages Timothy to be strong in grace, strong in Christ's love, to live from that place that is our home beyond the mirror in God's love. Of course, this is not the only thing Paul means by grace. Paul also means freedom from artificial rules by which we attempt to gain God's acceptance. In the case of Paul and the whole Jewish nation, Clean versus unclean foods, Sabbath laws, circumcision, and so forth, by which they attempted to gain righteousness for themselves before God. Paul had come to realize that it was by grace that justification comes through simple faith in Christ and not by rules by which we attempt to attain God's approval. Abraham Lincoln, who was known as a man with humorous anecdotes for every occasion, 
That reminds me of a story, he'd say. He once told of a country church he knew. At the time, because alcohol was such a problem in America, accompanied as it was by domestic violence and loss of work, prohibition was on the rise. The church members, including most pastors, loved their whiskey. And so one particular church was moved to cast out of membership a man who was advocating total abstention from drinking. The following week, however, they disbarred from membership a man who was a drunkard. This led a member of the church to stand during one Sunday service holding a half-empty bottle in one hand and say, two weeks ago you kicked a man out of the church for preaching teetotaling. Last week you kicked out a drunkard. What I'd like to know is just how much of this I have to drink in order to remain a member in good standing. Legalism in one area or another is always the temptation of the church. It is easy, but destructive of grace. Strengthen yourself, write Paul, in grace. Jesus said, All who look upon the Son and believe on him shall have eternal life. We have been set free. The second clue Paul gives as we seek to strengthen ourselves is to reflect upon faith. Reflect on these things, writes Paul. Paul here is referring to metaphors to the Christian life he had just given of soldiers, athletes, and farmers, all of whom endure hardship in view of a goal. For all the grace and freedom that are ours, the Christian life also involves hardship. Why? Why is life beyond the mirror so difficult? Probably because, as Paul writes in Romans 8, fixing our minds on the things of the Spirit and living out the grace we have received toward others does not come naturally. In Galatians 5.17, Paul writes, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. The two are in conflict. So you do not do what you want. The rules of engagement for the Christian, among others, are set out in 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter about love. which defines love as being patient, kind, not proud, not keeping track of wrongs, always trusting, 
etc. And living that out can be very hard. In the midst, especially of today's controversies, it's important to remember that love always comes first. How do we know when we're living this life in the spirit? Perhaps reading what the life in the spirit is not might help. Paul goes on to say later in chapter 5 of Galatians, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want to pause today, particularly on the words hatred, discord, dissensions, and factions. Is it possible that those attitudes might develop among people who walk with Christ? Jesus thought so. When James and John, members of his inner circle in Luke 9.55, asked Jesus for permission to send down lightning on the Samaritans, Jesus replied, you do not know what spirit you are of. The fruit of the spirit, writes Paul, is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is life beyond the mirror. This is life in the spirit. This is God's life. It's so easy to fall into its opposite. In the 10th Federalist paper, Written to guide the founders of the United States as they designed our Constitution, James Madison wrote that one of the greatest enemies of democracy is a spirit of faction. The tendency to divide ourselves into parties that are so inflamed with mutual animosity that they are much more disposed to vex and oppress each other than to cooperate for the common good. He went on to say that people given to faction when there are no major issues to fight will inflame passions by fastening on trivia. The spirit of faction is not life in grace, but life lived according to the sinful nature. Christ has called us to something else. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they shall be called children of God. If anyone competes as an athlete, Paul writes, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. Reflect, he says, on what I am saying. The third clue that Paul gives to finding strength is to remember Jesus Christ. 
raised from the dead, descended from David. Now, this may seem self-evident, but it's worth all the rest. When our hearts are confused, Jesus' resurrection is the anchor keeping us from drifting. I can doubt the church. I can doubt national leaders. I can doubt myself. But Jesus' resurrection is my tether to truth. Paul writes in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. This is gold in a day when so much dross surrounds us. So many conspiracy theories that have been unleashed upon unsuspecting minds and are unsettling hearts. Speaking of which, You should know that conspiracy theories were rampant in Jesus' day, too. People accused Jesus of casting out demons by the prince of demons. They said he healed in league with Beelzebub. They accused him of planning to tear down the temple. Later, they said his disciples had stolen his body. And still later that at their communal suppers, Christians practiced orgies and ate children's bodies. How do you unravel slander of that kind? How do you know what is true? The good thing is that there is such a thing as truth. And truth is one thing that we as Christians, above all people, should care about. Our faith is built upon it. Science is built upon it. Our system of justice is built upon it. Jesus' bodily resurrection was truth in a haze of contradictory opinions. It reminds me of a discussion I had with a friend this week. We were looking at some plants in our backyard, and he pointed to one, and he said, that's rosemary. And I said, no, it's not. It's lavender. He picked some of the leaves and smelled them and said, smell this. It's rosemary. I said, no, it's lavender. Come over here, and I'll show you some rosemary. So we went over to our gigantic blooming rosemary bush, and he picked some. We went back to the lavender bush bush and compared the needles they were nearly identical now this friend is a very convincing guy but I knew it was lavender because I planted it and we've been harvesting lavender from it for years If that had not been my experience, I would have been swayed by his conviction. But I knew the truth. My conviction was fact-based. Nothing could sway me. 
And it was like that with the disciples. In the midst of accusations of disloyalty to the empire, disloyalty to their, Christian, their Jewish roots, and the illogic of bodily resurrection, the disciples unanimously proclaimed it because they knew it was true. They had seen, touched, and talked with Jesus. They were willing to die for it because they were more interested in truth than in power. In today's context. And for 2,000 years, the church has been tempted but power before truth. We, if anybody, we need to hang onto the grace and mercy and the truth of Christ's bodily resurrection. It is strength for the soul. Hebrews 6.19 says we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. There's another reason the resurrection of Jesus is important for those seeking strength. It is found in the words, remember Jesus Christ descended from David. Those three words anchor us in the work of Christ for us. One of the amazing things about the Bible is how connected it all is. How the latter parts are continually foreshadowed by what went before. And when it comes to David, though we often think of him as a reigning, conquering king, and that is what his descendant Jesus is, the events that most marked the end of David's reign were tragic beyond words. His sin with Bathsheba, his murder of her husband, and the prophet Nathan's unveiling of it marked David forever. When God came to David through Nathan the prophet and told him that he had forgiven David's sin, but that because of his sin, his child would die, there is a foreshadowing of the events of Calvary. Confronted with our sin, our hearts breaking, God tells us our sin is forgiven, but that because of our sin, his son will die. The same truth is reflected some 20 years later when another son of David's, a son named Absalom, rebels against David with a huge army. When David hears that Absalom's army has been defeated and that Absalom has been killed, David raises his voice crying out, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Do you hear the heart of God in that cry of David? It is God's cry for each one of us. It is a cry of love. 
It is God saying to rebellious hearts, let me die instead of you. Paul writes in Romans 8, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. If we want Christ to reign in us, we must first accept his death for us. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David. One of the greatest reflections of this linking of Old Testament and New and God's work on our behalf was related to me recently by my wife, Julie. Julie is in a book group that recently studied N.T. Wright's book, Broken Signposts. In it, Wright recalls the layout of the tabernacle, the wilderness wanderings, where, Jesus, where Israel came to meet with God. In the most holy place of the tabernacle into which the high priest would enter only once a year, Aaron would come with blood, symbolizing the death that occurs in the presence of a holy God whenever sin is present. He would sprinkle that blood on the golden lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which held the Ten Commandments. That lid where he sprinkled the blood was called the mercy seat. When the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, God saw the blood and he was satisfied. He forgave his people's sin and brought them back into fellowship with him. But the notable thing for our discussion today is that the mercy seat was protected from view by two golden cherubim that spread their wings forward over and around it. Two angels spread their wings over that sacred place where God received the offering for sin. Two golden angels circled that place of reconciliation where atonement was made. Now, why is that important? Because on Easter morning, in the place where Jesus' body had lain, Mary Magdalene, the symbol of broken humanity, found two angels, one at the head, And one at the foot. There they were, like the angels in the Holy of Holies with outstretched wings at the mercy seat. Jesus' blood had been poured out. And God saw and was satisfied. The price had been paid. The righteous requirements of God had been fulfilled. This time not with the blood of a goat or a calf, but by the blood of his own son. In troubled times, that is where truth is to be found. There, there at the mercy seat of God's love in Christ, there is where truth is to be found. When John, the beloved disciple, ran to the tomb, the gospel said he looked in and believed. What God asks us today is who struggle in darkness is to turn and do the same, to look at that mercy seat, bounded by angels and believe. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David. Strength yourself in that grace. Look there. Look at the mercy seat and strengthen yourself in grace. Look there. Look to the Son. Put your faith where he dwells beyond the mirror. It's there you'll find the strength you need in uncertain times. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these truths which are so personal and yet they are objective. 
And we thank you, Lord, that in the midst of so much uncertainty in our world and division and factions, God, we can come to truth, and that truth is in you. And so we pray you'd help us to live that out in grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.